Hi everyone, Rian Luisa here with a brand new episode of Hallway Talks. This week we ventured into the virtual hallways of the NYU Law Building where we serendipitously found Professor Philip Alston, one of the most important and compelling voices in the human rights community today. Professor Alston held UN senior appointments for over 2 decades and most recently served as a UN special rapporteur on extreme poverty and human rights from 2014 until this year. Right now he's focusing on teaching human rights and international law at the NYU Law School and he's also co-chair of the NYU Center for Human Rights and Global Justice. And somehow he still found some free time to talk to us. about why we shouldn't be afraid of saying that human rights are political and how international organizations have to rethink their goals and actions in a COVID-19 world. Hold on to the end to hear about a young professor's Austin's adventure in a remote village in Papua New Guinea. This episode was recorded Friday, September 25th, 2020. So thank you so much for joining us Professor Olsen it's such a pleasure to have you and we've really enjoyed reading your papers and all of your commentary on poverty and human rights over the last week and when we were doing our research as good millennials the first thing we did was go to your twitter account we saw that the headline there was poverty is a political choice can you explain to us why did you choose that phrase for your twitter header Well, the main uh, counter-narrative to that is that um, is to quote the Bible and say poverty will always be with us, and therefore it doesn't really matter what you do, uh, you're not going to get rid of it. And so my message is that in fact uh, we could get rid of poverty in almost every society if we want to, but in fact uh, the elites who are controlling economic and other policies don't want to get rid of poverty they benefit from it uh and they are unconcerned by the plight of others so could you talk to us about the clashing of goals there and are the un goals that have been set even effective it really is important <clears throat> to emphasize that poverty is a matter of politics and one of the big problems is that if you look at the world bank and you look at the un they really act as though it's not a question of politics they want to see it as a technical question uh we have all these women who are living in poverty what can we do for them and sometimes they move beyond the sort of top down thing we can provide these programs to saying no we have to consult with them and we have to empower them but the truth is that unless you're addressing the political context the women that you are allegedly helping are disempowered for all sorts of reasons and unless that is very specifically addressed uh and unless the international actors are really pushing the politicians in the relevant country the policy programs are just the poverty programs are just going to go on and on and on uh, they're going to sound very good but the results are going to be minimal one thing that you specifically talk about the poverty line from the world bank and how 
this kind of um, generic measure that try to aim to all countries and different living situations all around the world is not effective. Do you have an idea of what would be a good uh, counter solution to that? What would be a policy that would be more effective at trying to look at poverty in a broader context? Well, uh, the irony is that there are uh, loads of answers to that question, which are very uh, compelling. Uh, there's been a huge amount of work done on how do we measure poverty. But what has happened is that one particular measure, which used to be called the dollar a day line, which is now up to a dollar 90 a day, um, has sort of, one could say caught the imagination, but that would be to make it look as though it's accidental. It's been privileged by the World Bank and others uh, in all of the broad discussions. So if you're looking at the global situation, people are going to give you figures about the hundreds of millions that have been lifted out of poverty and the small number, maybe 600 million who still remain in poverty. And all of this is based on the $1.90 a day measure. But the problem is that living on $1.90 a day is barely miserable subsistence, uh, even in the poorest of countries. And so to be celebrating and saying, wow, we're almost there uh, is really totally artificial. Uh, and yet it's the approach that people like Bill Gates, uh, the World Bank itself, the UN in the uh, Sustainable Development Goals consistently opts for. But as soon as you get serious, you get into a room with poverty professionals, they're going to say, well, that we have to use a multidimensional uh, measure of poverty. Uh, we have to apply other ways of understanding what's really going on. And they have quite a number of such measures. The World Bank itself has several very important and impressive measures, but they're not the ones that are given the uh, real publicity when we are, quote, bragging about what great success we've had. So I do want to dig into those goals and why they, I guess, capture the attention and that's where the spotlight ends up happening. But before that, maybe we can talk a little bit about your time at the UN. So you worked as a UN Human Rights Special Counsel Rapporteur. Could you walk us through how you got there and what that role was like? Well, <clears throat> uh, technically, I didn't work at the UN. Um, the role of a Special Rapporteur is that of a so-called independent expert. Uh, the uh, notion evolved um, about 40 years ago when the, the predecessor of the Human Rights Council realized that you can't um, rely on either governments to generate reliable information or on the UN Secretariat uh, they could have relied on the UN officials, but uh, states were not prepared to. They wanted those officials to remain neutral. And so independent assessments were not part of the system, but they were essential. So what happened was the evolution of this special rapporteur uh, system, where today you have more than 40 experts 
dealing with topics ranging from uh, killings, torture, violence against women, uh, all the way through uh, health, food, uh, education, and poverty. Uh, and the idea is that these experts will be objective, but will say things that governments uh, would never say, and that international organizations would not really be able to say on important current issues. I was very impressed, a little surprised in a great way, reading your report uh, about poverty, the, the most recent one. Exactly that, how we were able to be assertive and direct and really call out the human rights international community in in what they, their flaws were and what they were doing. That was so interesting to hear. Another great point that I think you made in one of your reports and a criticism to the UN, a very interesting, compelling one, was on your report about climate change. You talked about how a lot of times the resolutions focus on specific groups, but even though climate change affects people disproportionately and in different ways, it doesn't affect in these clear lines between developed or developing country, men or woman or anything like that. So it's a disservice to do the resolutions focusing so direct on specific groups. Can you talk more about this criticism and what would be the alternative there? Well, I think there are two elements there. One is that human rights is so um, knee-jerk accustomed to looking at particular groups. So much of what is done is looking at people with disabilities, looking at uh, gender, looking at uh, social, sexual orientation, whatever the group might be. And so a lot of the climate change workers said, oh, we need to look at the impact of climate change on women. And that's totally legitimate. It's very important. It's very different from the uh, other uh, impacts, uh, but it then runs into the second problem, which is that you are again avoiding the politics of it. So that if you say, oh dear, women really are hardly done by, we have to pay much more attention. So when the you know, dramatic climate event happens, let's look particularly at how women are affected. Again, that's all very well and good, but the climate change uh, drama should itself be being addressed and should be seen as a human rights matter. And so far, the human rights community has tended to hide or to escape from those big issues and not be prepared to confront them. And I think that has to change. I love how you say so clearly that human rights are political and climate change is political and poverty is political because I think a lot of people, and even more so here in the US, they are afraid to admit that something's political. And they tend to get, I think, political and partisan mixed up a lot of times. And they want to say something's not political when they want, what they really are trying to say is that something's not partisan. So how do we make human rights political? Well, um, I think, I mean, part of the fault, of course, is with the human rights community itself. Uh, it is true that for a very long time, many people would say, look, I, I've got nothing to do with politics. Uh, all I'm saying is that someone shouldn't be tortured uh, or there should be equal rights accorded. But the truth of the matter was that that was always a political uh, position. Um, and I think that that has 
sort of prevented human rights proponents from really getting down and engaging. I think your point about the distinction between partisan and political is very important. It's uh, really um, instructive to recall that uh, back in the 1980s when the US was debating the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, initially that was not a partisan matter and the US came very close to getting the 35 states required to pass the amendment. But in the intervening years, it's suddenly become partisan. Uh, if you are a Republican, you can't somehow be in favor of women's rights. Um, and that is really bizarre. Uh, it is political, whether you want women to be treated equally, whether you want them to have a fair share of uh, everything the society has to offer. That's a political choice, but it shouldn't be seen as a partisan choice uh, because there are different ways in which that can be achieved and Republicans might want one road and Democrats another, but the overall goals should still be seen as valid political goals across the spectrum. So here I would love to hear what your thoughts are on the multilateral organizations that support in the background this rights based approach to development and do the goals, the sustainable development goals, the MDGs, do these kind of, I guess, sets of indicators that we hope to achieve, do these serve the rights-based approach to development and the eradication of poverty? The goals are clearly admirable. One can't really contest that. Uh, the history is pretty straightforward. The UN started um, way back in the 1960s, adopting an, a decade-long strategy. And in those um, strategies, again, it was uh, what we call a grab bag of objectives. So, you know, you put in your five top priorities, I'll put in mine, and Louisa puts in hers, and we've got 15, and let's go for it. Uh, at a certain point, the um, leadership of the UN came to the realization that having this huge laundry list of uh, goals was all very well and good, but nothing was being prioritized. Out of that came the Millennium Development Goals, which were really narrowed down to a small number of goals and a small number of ways to measure them. That process, however, wasn't democratic. It was done by a small group within the UN Secretariat. And so at the end of that period, uh, when it came time for a new uh, set of objectives for 2015, uh, the consultation took place. There were every imaginable group was involved. And it was great in a way because you then have these huge number of goals that have been endorsed. And if you're working on any particular concern, you will be happy with the SDGs because you'll be able to find, you know, in paragraph 199 or whatever, uh, that's my issue. You see, they recognized it. But the problem is that you can't move forward on all of those. And moreover, there isn't the sort of real overarching way of looking at things. And so a classic example is climate change. There is indeed a goal in there that talks about climate change, 
But climate change is the ultimate uh, cross-cutting issue. Um, and it cannot be addressed separately from all the others. We now know that. Uh, believe it or not, we didn't in 2015. The political priority wasn't there. The, the general community awareness was uh, even lower than it still is today. I think that the sustainable development goals are admirable in principle, but I also think it's turned into something of an industry uh, which takes a lot of the real drive out of it. Uh, it's become bureaucratized in an extreme way. It's the subject of endless little colorful charts and um, heaven knows what else. Um, but when you go on the ground and say to people, have the SDGs made a big difference? you will hear from those who have a stake in the SDGs that they have, because those are the people who are getting resources. Those are the people who are working on these things. If you speak more broadly, you'll find deep skepticism. Uh, so the classic examples, poverty, uh, we are nowhere near the 2030 goal, uh, and it's not going to be achieved because there isn't a huge political push. Uh, gender equality, uh, there's been certainly been strides made, but the figures for realizing economic equality of opportunity are just laughable, you know, many decades away uh, at the present rate. And again, you know, gender equality, those who are in power don't really want it. You know, any power that women get, I lose. Uh, I'm not going to be pushing for that. So just to say, oh, we're going to talk to government now and we're going to promote the gender equality goals and so on. Um, unless there is a, a real preparedness to identify the obstacles and to call out the countries that are not taking the sort of steps without which women will never be able to achieve these goals. It's, it's losing time. Uh, and I think a new drive really needs to be injected into the SDGs and a much more critical spirit uh, if they're really going to achieve anything in the um, uh, under a decade that remains. You said we need to call out the countries. And this reminded me of uh, in your critical report after uh, your time working on the task force with the Millennium Development Goals, uh, your critical report pointed out a very interesting, I guess, disparity, apart from pointing out many problems with the MDGs, a disparity with how developing and richer countries adopted the MDG obligation or commitment or whatever we call it, and how there are some wealthy countries who do not have the incentive to provide assistance or to even adopt these goals. Can you talk about this difference in how countries respond to these goals? One of the biggest challenges going into the drafting of the SDGs uh, was always whether there would be any form of accountability. Um, and that's controversial. We have uh, some form of accountability in the human rights area. Uh, in other words, um, if a government is killing people, if a government is arresting large numbers of people for uh, political speech, 
um, they get called out. They should. There should be a report. It should say that in country X, uh, 345 people have been killed by security forces in the last six months and so on. So the information is there. And those who want to act upon it can, whether it's other countries, whether it's people within the country itself. In the development area, there is no real form of accountability. If you take the various goals, there are lots of governments that are actually achieving almost nothing. What happens is they are asked to report to the high level political forum. They give a report which is incredibly superficial and says that everything's going great. Thanks very much. And the high level political forum just more or less takes note of it and that's it. So there's no accountability. Uh, there's no international organization which is saying, hang on, when we scrutinize what you've been doing in this particular area, you've actually been going backwards. And some of the policies you've adopted seem to run counter to the SDGs and so on. Governments have systematically resisted this form of accountability. Um, but that in turn means that the SDG process, the actual procedures are really deeply flawed. Uh, because the SDGs are not going to amount to anything unless governments can be held to account, not by other countries. You know, we're not asked, we don't want the United States coming into Bangladesh and saying, oh, you naughty Bangladeshis, you're not living up to your goals. You know, go away, United States, we'll do our own thing. But the people in Bangladesh ought to know, how is my government doing? Of course, my government says that everything's great. But every government says that, what's the real picture? And there ought to be an international organization saying, well, actually, people of Bangladesh, here are the areas where your government hasn't done too badly, but there are a number of areas where things are really going badly and they should be given political priority and the government should be alerted and awakened and put under pressure to do much better. And that's not happening. As one of your many insightful thoughts in your reports, you said in your last report on the polar state of poverty eradication, that we need to recalibrate the sustainable development goals due to COVID-19, the ensuing recession, and the accelerating global warming crisis. So how do we recalibrate it? I should say that's confidential and I can't let you into that secret. Oh, is it? <laughs> Don't scare me. <laughs> um, well, you know, the truth is that there isn't a single answer. Uh, you know, I don't have a single formula. And even if I did, no one would be interested in it. We, we talk a lot about in the days of COVID about herd immunity. And I think Donald Trump mistook it the other day and talked about a herd mentality. Uh, but that's the right word. There is a herd mentality when it comes to policies in these areas. People just follow the leaders. You've got the SDGs. We've really got to commit ourselves. The Secretary General issues these statements, which are sometimes very stirring, saying, you know, things are absolutely cataclysmic when it comes to climate change. Oh, so what should we do, Secretary General? We should double down on the SDGs. Sorry, SG, but that hasn't worked in the past. That's why we are where we are. And something different needs to be done. You can't just say 
the policies we adopted five years ago are there. Things are really shocking right now. So therefore we go back to the pre-existing policies. Now, his argument would be, well, the policies are good. It's just that they haven't been implemented. But the whole challenge for the UN is why haven't they been implemented? And what can you do to change the situation? And you don't just say yet again, you know, if it's someone who's behaving badly, if my son's behaving badly, I don't just say to him 10 times, don't do that again, please be good. At a certain point, I've got to start thinking now, why is he just ignoring my advice? Why is this not working? How can I give him an incentive to actually change? And I think that's the sort of uh, approach we need to the SDGs. Uh, the existing approaches are not working. Even if you insist that the goals are still valid, you've got to come up with a new way of doing it. You know, you, the way in which you frame this, I can feel your frustration coming out. And <laughs> I'm from India and the, a very common critique of my government is that their policies are good on paper, but bad in practice. And something I always say in response to that is, well, we don't elect them to write policies on paper, right? We, we vote for implementable, executable policies, and then we vote for them to execute them. And it's not enough to just say that these policies are good on paper. Uh, but another thing that you talked about was how we rely on experts in these organizations. And I think that COVID has shown a bit of a shift in how we rely on experts in the way that we don't in the way that we disregard data and we disregard what experts say. And I think a lot of this might be part of President Trump's legacy in the, in the global community. But how do you see data and evidence in the International Human Rights Committee? How much weight does it have? Well, uh, I mean, it's a complex set of issues. Um, before the Trump era, uh, there were very strong criticisms of um, the technocracy, so-called. In other words, the notion that uh, we really need to rely even more on experts because they have the answer. And my whole criticism about the absence of politics obviously is very relevant to that. In other words, we cannot entrust things to experts and say, okay, well, we're out of here. Let the economists tell us what to do. That doesn't work either. Uh, I think the Trump era, however, has taken us pretty radically in the opposite direction where there is no heed paid to evidence and policy-based decision-making is considered to be, uh, or evidence-based is considered to be passe uh, and instead it's all politics and clearly that is uh, every bit as unbalanced as the all uh, technocracy uh, so there's no easy answer but there does need to be a balance uh, it can't be all politics but it also can't be all uh, expert run there's got to be a combination and we have to be honest is the main thing about what's technical and what's political uh, to say, look, the technical analysis yields three possible solutions. Uh, politically, I reject two of those and I prefer the other for the following reasons. 
so the idea of giving reasons, the idea of having to try to explain and justify is still important, even in the political arena. Uh, but we tend to have lost that in the current era. And of course, uh, I wish it was just uh, Donald Trump, but we have leaders uh, in many countries around the world who are uh, at least mimicking uh, that approach. Professor Austin, this has been such an interesting conversation. I feel so inspired in thinking about human rights in a more proactive, bold way in trying to figure out how the international community can be more assertive on them and more innovative maybe. But it is time to start closing our interview. We are running out of time. And I have one last question. In my research, I learned an interesting fact about you, that at the end of your law degree, you moved to a very isolated village in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> and I think right now we, we are all wanting to move to a very isolated <laughs> village in a tropical island. So can you please tell us a little bit about your experience there and maybe how this inspired your career? Well, I think it was a very, uh, a very good experience for a... Uh a young white boy from a privileged middle-class background in Australia. The idea of the program was that Papua New Guineans would come down and live in Australia in their normal cities and so on. Uh, and a handful of uh, Australian students would go and live in villages, but we each went to completely different villages. And mine was <clears throat> up in what's called the Sepik area, which is the northwest of Papua New Guinea. I came back with malaria, living, oh, no. I was the only white person in the entire region except for the priest who would come every now and then from a village down the river. I was eating food that I really disliked. Uh, I was going to the toilet on the beach each morning uh, along with uh, many other people. And I was learning about the crops and so on that the locals grew. I think it was a very useful experience to leave behind all of the comforts of life, uh, but also be forced to think not, wow, aren't these people uh, behind us in some ways, but wow, aren't they different? And they were still very happy. And even as a lawyer, I remember going to a... Uh, there was a, a marital dispute. I think someone had had an affair or whatever, and they were simply brought, um, all right, Louisa, all right, Rhea, come with me. We're going to speak to the village elder. And so the village elder would just say, all right, um, you women, I've got some questions for you. Uh, and then at the end, so Rhea, I don't want you to do that again. And in fact, I want you to make up by, you know, providing... 10 coconuts a day for the next five days to Louisa, uh, et cetera. And that was justice. Um, and, you know, the women went away. They were not happy, but uh, it was all resolved. And that was fascinating uh, to contrast with the uh, sort of procedures we go through. Um, and salutary also for someone who then became interested in human rights, because we tend to attach such great importance to formal institutions and to training and so on. Uh, and yet what one could witness, at least on the surface, um, seemed to work. But of course, we also know that that would have been a very patriarchal system 
uh, that it wouldn't have been uh, doing any sort of deep justice to uh, to, to women in particular, but uh, also other groups. But anyway, no, it was a real, it was a good learning experience for me. And I will hold you accountable for the coconuts, Ria. Yes, 100%. <laughs> I believe in this justice. Thank you so much, Professor Austin. This is, was such a great interview. It was really a pleasure talking to you. It's uh, a particular pleasure for me to uh, talk with anyone who's read any of my reports. Oh, so thank we you. read all of them. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Even the confidential ones. <laughs>